I think a lot of problems that decision makers run into is that their KPIs are based on what what turnover, what revenue are you going to bring in in the next 12 months as opposed to what are you going to bring in 20 years down the track? As you can tell by my beanie, a fever has taken over the country and its number one symptom is the smell of jasmine in the air. No, it's not a wave of COVID, but that could definitely be the case. But footy fever that I'm talking about. In the northern states, rugby league is reuniting its state v state competitiveness as North Queensland and Penrith, both regional outlets I might just want to add, have progressed to the penultimate stage. Whilst in the southern states where we reside, one eye is on who will win the big dance come this Saturday, whilst the other is surveying whether the Apple Eye will get an invite to the party at all. The slow burn narrative of 2022, in AFL circles at least, was whether Tasmania would be presented with the opportunity to host the 19th club in the Australian Football League. And with the bid formally being presented to the AFL Commission and the club presidents today, Monday the 19th of September, I'm joined by Senior Associate James Fitzpatrick and Associate Sabrina Navarro to analyse what we know about the bid so far and to explain Michelson Alexander's approach to the very strategic communications and engagement plan needs of the major stakeholders involved in this important decision for the country's biggest professional sporting organisation. Thank you for joining us today, guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So first off, the big question I think for most people listening, especially if you're not a sports buff, is why do we care? And this came from our Deputy Labor Leader of Tasmania, Anita Dow, in response to the costings, which are around about $100 million for a 10-year commitment and a further $50 million up front before we even involved the stadium. So her response was, we're in the midst of a health, housing and cost of living crisis, and this government needs to do more to get the basics right for Tasmanians. So with that in mind, Sabrine, what do football sporting organisations give back to the community that warrants such an upfront expense? I think apart from the obvious answer, which would be entertainment, I think sporting clubs offer a lot more. Uh, and, and I want to break this down into a few things, which is um, the first being opportunity. And opportunity in that it offers a lot of pathways for locals and the community. I, I know that I've experienced AFL players coming to my primary school when I was a kid and being able to shake their hand, kick a footy with them, was just an amazing experience and does a lot for what I want to what I wanted to aspire to when I wanted to grow up and and how I wanted to play my football, play being an athlete. I couldn't agree more with Sabrine there. Like it's so clear the role that sporting clubs in Australia play for the Australia's social and cultural fabric. And I'm glad that the deputy leader, Labor leader in Tassie pulled out the, the point about, well, hang on, we're in the midst of a health, housing and cost of living crisis here because I think sporting clubs actually have a role to addressing some of those social issues that we've got. And they've done this for many decades in Australia. And for some of the reasons that Sabrine's just outlined then, you know, they, they provide a pathway for people. They connect to different cultures and communities. They actually bring money in as well. Like, yes, uh, local support does require some investment, but they also bring in a lot of money through a whole number of avenues like tourism. But the last example when, um, comes out, and, and I'll use it, an anecdote to tell this story, but you know, a while back, Gordon and I had an opportunity to travel around to a lot of sporting clubs across uh, rural Australia, and we went to one particular one um, that's just across the Victorian New South Wales border uh, in New South Wales called Finlay, and there the local football and netball club had played such an important role in that town, particularly through the Australian drought. 
And what we found was that sporting clubs and the local football and netball clubs in these small regional towns had taken on the role of the church. So for many years in Australian society, the church was your um, common meeting place for the community. It was where people went on a weekend to get together, um, to swap stories, um, to sort of build up that social, cultural cohesion of the community. Um, and, and that was all, almost their mental health, their mental well-being outlet. And, you know, we've seen over many decades that the church in Australia has declined for a variety of reasons. But what we found in those towns is that the local football and netball club, and the same goes for other sports, became the new meeting point for that community. So on a Thursday night at the football and netball training, that's where the whole town, even if they weren't playing or if they didn't have kids playing, they would come and they would have a meal together after training or they'd be there on Saturday for game day and the whole community got out. And that was um, a real relief during that drought uh, period of drought where a lot of families were experiencing significant financial distress, um, not too dissimilar to the cost of living to today, albeit in, in different formats significant mental health issues throughout regional uh, Australia and a lot of them were being addressed through the support of the football and netball club and you've seen that you know anyone that's been involved in those sporting clubs will have similar stories on different topics and I think for that reason you know there is a that is one of the critical reasons why we've got to support the growth of sport across Australia um, and support its role in providing um, health and social uh, social cohesion to communities all across the nation. And I suppose even above and beyond that, the events element of something like this is has been highlighted as well by by the Premier of the Tasmanian State Government in a justification for these initial outlays is basically that it creates a precinct, it creates a, a reason for people to come visit our state, but also it creates a reason for our state to, to feel... Um, equal to the rest of Australia, his his kind of response to that to that comment was basically like Tasmania can't keep saying no to things because we have problems. We will fix our problems. We will fix our issues that we're currently facing and do these things on top of and be a bit more aspirational with our activities. So that's kind of been the story. Of this bit, if you go back through its history, Tasmania has been an aspirational state. It has a long and strong, proud AFL or Australian rules football history. And since about 1990, it's been trying to get its own AFL team for, for various reasons. Um, and then it missed out on an expansion time in, in the late 2000s, 2008, when Gold Coast and DWS were introduced. And now have been experimenting with these uh, uh, home games between Hawthorne and North Melbourne to see if there was an appetite for people to come and travel to Tasmania, which there is. The colour report was released last year in 2021. And on the back of that, they are submitting their funnel uh, submission for the Tasmanian AFL licence bid today uh, in 2022. But with such a complex history preceding all of this bid, uh, James, how would you think that we at Michaels and Alexander would go about um, approaching the strategic communication needs and the engagement plan needs of, of such a complex uh, and, and large bid? It's a great question, Gordon, and it's obviously a really complex problem. As you've highlighted in the history of this issue, it's been going for many years. And there are many challenges with expanding a, a competition and expanding to a, a new state, um, even if that state has got a, a long history with AFL uh, or, or playing Australian rules football. So in terms of looking at the strategic communications plan or a, a stakeholder engagement campaign around this issue to, to help build support for 
an AFL team in uh, in Tasmania, an expansion of the Australian Football League, there's a number of steps that I recommend uh, you'd need to go through to build that campaign and, and to get that success. And, and this is the approach that we would use for basically any type of strategic communications or stakeholder engagement campaign that has a number of complex um, issues attached to it. And the first and, first and most important thing you need to do is to identify who the decision makers are because it's all very well doing a song and dance about what you think needs to happen. But if you're not influencing um, or if you're not changing the minds of the decision makers, then that song and dance will be for nothing. So you need to identify who those decision makers are so that you need, so that you there, you will then know who to influence. And I think it's probably a good place to start. And, and, and I put this um, to you, Sabrina and Gordon. In this case, who do you think that the key decision makers are? Uh, well, I mean, straight off the bat, I'm thinking the obvious one would be the Tasmanian state government and, and the sports minister there. Then I'm thinking, obviously, the AFL and all the AFL clubs um, that need to come to consensus uh, and basically come to vote and say, hey, yeah, we, we want this as part of the as part of our journey in, in the AFL. I'm thinking already the, the state teams as ready, uh, all the NAB League AFL teams that are already established there, and a whole bunch of local community stakeholders. And I'm thinking local footy clubs, fans. So you've gone through a whole list of stakeholders that are really important to this to this issue, to the, to the potential future of Tasmania having uh, a state, but you've highlighted their stakeholders, some of whom are decision makers and some of whom are going to be useful in the campaign and uh, really important players in the campaign. And I think for if you were running this campaign, I think once you've got that full list that you've just gone through is to then split the list out into two. So you've got people that you would involve in the campaign and involve in building public support and building key stakeholder support. But then you've got to highlight the handful that are actually the ones who are going to sign on the dotted line. The ones that we need to convince um, to accept this proposal to go ahead. And I think, um, you know, the AFL is sitting with them really, the decision. And then I think you need to go even deeper than that um, to the AFL commission so ultimately, it, it, they'll be the ones deeply involved in signing off on this proposal, as are the club presidents. And, and Gordon, I, th I think you've got some, some detail on the actual proceedings of how a vote and a decision will be made. But I think if we're highlighting who those decision makers are that we need to influence in this campaign, I'd be starting with the AFL Commission. So Goida, McLaughlin, Bassett, Bishop, Milroy, Newbold, Trainer, and Wilkie, the commissioners right now, they are almost the most important people in the, in the room. We need to know who they are and what keeps them awake at night. And I know that's getting really, really personal, uh, but I'm talking about, you know, what matters to them. And this is, the, this is a classic approach in any type of um, influence management or stakeholder management. You need to know what keeps someone up at night. What's their pain? What's their problem? That you're presenting the solution to because and this is a mistake that a lot of organizations and, and leaders in campaigns make is they think they're onto something good they've got a really great proposal it's a great song and dance about who they are and what they do 
But if that's not talking to the pain and the problem uh, and what matters to the person that you're talking to, then you're not going to get anywhere. So you, you need to do, and if I was running this campaign, I'd be suggesting to them, we need to know everything there is to know about those commissioners, those eight commissioners, so that when we are making a proposal, we're talking, we're, we're pushing those pain points for them. We're talking their language and we're presenting solutions to them that are going to be relevant to them and that are going to immediately capture their attention. And so that's probably the, the like I would go down to the nitty gritty of that detail. Uh, and, and if you're the one, um, if you've got your spokesperson for the campaign, they're meeting with the commissioners. It's about preparing a brief on the, on the eight commissioners and going into as much detail as possible. Otherwise, you might you might be presenting something that's directly relevant to you, but it's not directly relevant to them, the people that you're trying to influence. And I think it's those eight commissioners. And then you've also got the department managers from the AFL. So the team of ex executive general managers um, from the AFL administration, who no doubt will be briefing the commissioners on the different aspects um, of this decision. And then you've got, I, th I think that the club presidents and Gordon in a, Am I right in saying that club presidents have a, a certain amount of vote uh, or voting power on this decision? Yeah, they do. So the way that the veto rules work is that the commission uh, can make their come to their decision and then present the decision to the club presidents, and then that requires a two-thirds majority agreement uh, to veto. So at the end of the day, the AFL only needs uh, seven of the 18 current presidents to agree to instead a new team for it to go ahead. Of course, all of the communications from Gil McLaughlin and the, and the wider executive at the AFL and the AFL commission is that they want all the club presidents to agree. So I suppose one of the questions I have here is that, is that one of, is that how you would heat map the situation? Is it beyond just the key stakeholders and the key decision makers that being the commission, but if, if they're so keen to bring everyone along with them, is it important to know why the AFL is doing that? And above and beyond that, is it then, change who you are target in in your communications i think absolutely it, it would change who you are targeting in your communications and and what you're going to include like what the key messages and content of those of those comms are going to be and you know what i'm picturing in my mind if if any of our listeners have, have watched the u.s political drama the west wing or any political drama for that matter when there's a big vote coming up or they need to get a policy matter over the line you know, there's always that scene where they've got the whiteboard and, you know, you, you see that it's in the lead up to elections as, as well. And the same goes in Australia. And they'll have the whiteboard of all the people they've called that they've tried to influence. Are they sitting for? Are they sitting against? And you just need to chip away at that list until you've got everyone across in the four column. Um, and it might be a different, it might be one of the horses for courses situations where you've got a different set of key messages, a different set of channels that you use for each of those decision makers. One thing that, that I'd be interested in exploring, uh, it's probably a good question for you, Sabrina, do you think do you think there needs to be unanimous support for an AFL team in in Tasmania? And in terms of the club presidents, it sounds like they don't need all of them to vote yes. But do you think it'd be wise uh, in ensuring that it is unanimous before they before they proceed? My instinct says no, and there's a reason why they don't need um, they don't need a lot of all the club presidents to say yes. And I'm assuming it's because there are going to get some naysayers that's going to be hard hard nosed and say no. And um, 
I know off my one hand, I think I know the ones that will say yes, and those are the ones that have been threatened to be moved to Tasmania already. And, and as a North Melbourne supporter, I will vote yes for a Tasmanian team because I know that um, our club president's probably going to want to hand that off and never want to play ever again. But then I'm, I'm thinking that if it, it would be wise, but I, don't, I just don't think it's achievable. I don't know, Gordo, do you think it's achievable? I think uh, group consensus is probably not going to be achievable given the history of, of the club presidents. Um, I think it is more uh, the AFL wanting a bit of a litmus test. A for... I think Gill's coming to the end of his end of his tenure, and they does, he doesn't want to leave uh, the AFL in a position where they're going to have a bunch of uh, club presidents offside and cause headaches for the AFL in the future. So I think it's some of it is risk management from the AFL, making sure that they're, they're making a fairly significant decision by bringing in a new club, and they don't want to lose the support of club presidents for further decisions in the future, especially around things like collective bargaining agreements, which are always the trickiest things to maintain. Um, but yes, other than that, I think a consen- consensus has, has never really occurred, and even through the history where team mergers have occurred and relocations have happened before, um, they've usually been quite quite split down the lines of um, basically the club presidents and the club's own self-interest. One key element to pull out of the stakeholder identification process, and we've just touched on it then, is that if you've mapped your stakeholders and you've mapped who they are, what decision-making power they've got, what their problems are, what their key interests and motivators are, then you can start to think about your key messages for them. In that process, you might, when you're doing the heat mapping, you might find that, yes, a lot of them are sitting on the fence and they're open to being influenced and hearing our key messages. Some might already be in support and we just need to keep that support going and we should use them, you know, the tactic might might therefore be uh, use them as ambassadors for our campaign. But in the heat mapping process, you might find that there are some fit sitting all the way over on the other side who are so, so against Tasmania having an AFL team. And we might decide that, look, we're, we're never going to win with them. We're never going to be influencing them to a point where they're going to be voting in favour of it. That's fine. You know, in a lot of campaigns, that's going to be the case. You're going to have opponents that are so far gone, there's no, there's no point trying to influence them. But what you do need, if you've gone through that process and identified those couple of people, it's important to know then what narrative are they going to be using because they're going to be influencing the the, the key decision makers the same way as we're going to be. They're probably sitting around the same whiteboard thinking, okay, how are we going to win this vote and, and get in the way of this vote? So you need to, it, it's worthwhile at the start before you get into, you know, the next steps of your strategy in highlighting and thinking through what arguments are they going to use? What are going to be their key messages? because that will then influence the key messages that you use or the strategy that you use. It might be that you start thinking, okay, what are our counter narratives gonna be? How can we use facts or evidence uh, or you know, a creative storytelling approach to counter some of the negative messages that we're gonna find from our opponents? And the reason why that's so important to do at the start is because you can then, uh, be really efficient and effective in your response. So if they've started with an op-ed in the local paper in the Mercury down in Tasmania, you've already got your counter-narrative ready to go. It's like putting water on a fire or water on water onto a, a bin fire before it blows up into a bushfire. Uh, and that's one of the really effective sort of 
risk mitigation strategies that I would include at that initial stage. Yeah, just to add to that, it, it doesn't mean that just because your your heat map says that these these naysayers are so far gone, it doesn't mean that you can bring them in closer to a more positive vote or a positive mindset after after it's been established. We've worked with some of our clients before where we've turned or we've kind of reduced the, the negative mindset of some of the naysayers just by exposing them to positive engagement um, workshops. And then it's actually changed their mind seeing things uh, open up and develop firsthand. So it's it, with, with some positive and proactive, as James has said, definitely helped the strategy to bring those naysayers further to the middle or even more, more so to the positive side. So, I mean, that's the beauty of strategic communications, right, and, and the beauty of, of the work that we do. A key message or the right brain's key message and correct stakeholder engagement can really flip one's opinion. And this goes to the, the third step of this process. So you've highlighted who the decision makers are, who your stakeholders are, where they sit on the heat map. You've done that exercise. You've figured out what their motivators are. Now you're starting to get into some of your key messages and what your narrative is going to be, whether it's you know counter narrative or it's positive um, storytelling. That's where you need to start building your key messages and building the evidence behind it. Uh, so what are, do we need to do some modeling? Like, do we need to do some modeling on the positive financial impact of bringing, bringing a Tasmanian side uh, down to the Apple Isle? Do we need to do some counter modeling on you know, some of the points that we, we know our opponents are going to bring up about you know, smaller population in Tasmania, larger population, um, you know, in other parts of Australia, the, the larger market size. Do we need to do some counter modeling on that? What's the evidence base that we can use? Can we go to, can we start building some case studies of other AFL teams or even, in, even looking beyond Australia to the rest of the world and looking at how other big uh, football leagues or sporting leagues have expanded and the pros and cons and, and and figuring are there any case studies that we can use in our in our campaign back here in Australia that's going to really um, support the cause because you know evidence facts modeling case studies those are the type of things that help get people over the line because your stakeholders the people that you're talking to they want to be able to visualise what you're talking about. They want to be able to see the evidence case behind it. You know, a lot of people nowadays are going to be naturally uh, naturally wary of storytelling and what they read in the media. Like people are a little bit cautious than they used to be with what's been told and then the storylines that have been told on the news and in the paper. So you need to be able to back it in with that, that modelling and that evidence and, and those case studies so people can believe it. Uh, they know that it's backed in by research. Uh, it's not just a great, like, you know, it's not just a gut feel. You think it's a good idea to have a Tasmanian AFL team. Okay, well, what's the evidence for it? And the case studies allow people to visualise what it could look like. And then they start to think, okay, you know, that worked in that state or that worked in that city um, on the other side of the world and they did it, you know, they they dealt with the, some of the risks that way uh, and then it ended up being this boon for that that country or that state. Now I can start to see how that, the same thing could happen for Tasmania. And so that's, I think now you're getting into the nitty gritty of the strategy and the, and the tactics and the, the key messaging that you can use as a part of your campaign. 
And so once you've uh, identified like the, the narrative shifts that need to occur and the kind of things you need to use to influence the key stakeholders, how do you, um, I suppose, present those, those facts in, in the best light possible? And is it important which types of mediums you use or which type of um, uh, techniques you use? Or does that come on the back of after you've re- researched the stakeholders you need to address and the, the narratives you need to change? Definitely comes on the back of the research that you've done about your stakeholders. So part of that research should highlight what are the best avenues for getting to that person? What's the most effective and efficient way of communicating your key message to them? And that's where we walk through the whole list of different tactics that you've got available. And that can be anything from uh, direct meeting requests, so meeting with them one-on-one, uh, through to the broader um, sort of information and education building where you're putting, maybe you're writing an op-ed that's uh, to be published through various newspapers. Maybe you start a social media campaign where you get some of those ambassadors of support. You start to get them telling the story as well. So that's not just coming from you, you're getting third-party validation. Maybe you're holding events or webinars or sessions where you can basically get your key messages across in as many different avenues as possible, but you've got to make sure that those are avenues that your your key stakeholders are listening to. So, you know, if we think back to those eight commissioners that we spoke about at the start of this podcast, it's doing a little bit of research on who they are and what newspaper do they read? Do they read the AFR? Do they read the Australian? Do they read the Herald Sun or the Mercury? Or do they not read newspapers at all? Do they spend most of their time on, on Qantas flights? Like, do you need to be advertising in the Qantas lounge? Like, it's down to the little minutiae of, of making sure you get cut through. And often you know, people think, oh, I've just got to get my key message across in you know, the biggest newspaper or the place that says it's got the most views. And, and people think, oh, it's, it, maybe that's the Herald Sun. But you've got to be a lot more targeted than that. You could be, you could get a lot more bang for your buck by figuring out exactly the mediums or the communication channels that your stakeholders that you're trying to influence that they consume on a daily basis, and then using that particular medium. And it might be that you don't need to spend tens of thousands of dollars for a big ad in, in the Herald Sun, and uh, News Corp might um, might be disappointed at me for saying that. But there might be much more. Uh, cost-efficient methods of getting through to those key stakeholders. And the one thing that I that I wouldn't rule out that a lot of people forget is that you can uh, you can consider those direct meetings, uh, the direct pitches. Um, a lot of people are afraid to pick up the phone and, and go to the office manager of a, of a key stakeholder or a commissioner or a politician, um, but you can literally reach out and ask for that meeting. And that might be, in some cases, that might be the most effective channel. Moving on from, we've got that kind of four-step process uh, now fairly explained to kind of dig into some hypotheticals that deal directly with the with the Tasmanian bid, and one was around uh, strategy. And so the back and forth has been occurring in the media, but I'm sure also via direct channels is this negotiation around a new a new stadium, which uh, today has reportedly been confirmed uh, to be held at Macquarie Point. Um, is it okay to have this like win one lose one approach? Because initially it, it felt like the state government was uh, trying its hardest not to commit to new stadium when they already had multiple stadiums across various venues throughout the state. 
but obviously it seems now that as we come to the the final uh, bid being submitted today, they've they've agreed and made the hard commitment to this this new venture. Is that is that okay for strategy to have this win one lose one approach? What we're what we're seeing play out here is a, it's you know it's a classic form of bartering. Like both sides have come at it with um, their wish list of what they'd like to have. Uh, I think. Um, what the AFL and, and the people running the AFL side of this negotiation have, have thought through is, okay, you know, what do we want to get out of this selfishly, which, you know, it's their job to do that. Um, what do we want to put on the table and then work back f- from there? What, what's the most that we can get out of it? And, you know, they know that they're in a position of power here. They're the ones who have the ultimate decision and they're the ones who Tasmania and, and others involved in the campaign to get a, a, a team in Tasmania they want something from the AFL, you know, so it's the AFL who are in a position of power here and have you know, are full, fully within their right to make certain demands. Um, and I, I think that's what we're seeing play out. The second question I have for you, Seb, is around timing. And so we see in a lot of these quite laborious uh, decision-making processes, the media hams up or really emphasises the effect of timing and especially when it happens to delays, which has also happened in this case. But how important is timing for these like mass consensus change decisions? And not only is it expansion of clubs in the AFL, but we see it, you know, it happens around the Republic referendum, around conscious votes, around any sort of large-scale um, change process. Why is timing so important or is timing that important? When you're, when you're timing the announcement or also even timing the submission for this, you want to make sure that all your key players or key stakeholders that or decision makers that we've, we've spoken about before have your full attention, honestly. So if you think about, for example, an election, you don't want to be asking for certain funding or or pushing your priorities in front of the in front of a state government or federal government um, when their main focus is is something else. So if their main focus is the election, you're not and, and campaigning, you're not going to get in front of them or get your priorities in front of them to be thought of if you've put it in too late. So you need to make those things early. So that is talking about timing itself. You need to make sure that your timing is right so that it's in the lead up to whatever decision-making event is going to occur. So if we're going to talk about the state government and if I was invite in advising the Tas- state government of Tasmania to, to submit, now would be the right time. You know, yet ending the AFL season, it's about to come to a close. We're also seeing the AFLW season sort of kind of like pick up and, and we're also seeing that AFLW North Melbourne Tasmanian team as a, as a case study. So you can also just point to just local communities uh, or local audiences to say, hey, look, why don't you come to an event? Why don't we go watch the AFLW game? Let's have a meeting in person and, and let's talk about this AFL Tasmanian team and see how we can get it up off the ground. Is that how you would approach it? You're being a lot more strategic than I am, Sab. Um, my approach to these kind of things is uh, carpe diem. And why wait? You know, we've got an opportunity now. Let's just go and do it. And the reason, the reason why I say that is because it might be a completely different landscape in two years' time, and you might not have the opportunity again. 
and when the door is open, I think you've got to take it. You've got to walk through it. And yes, you've got to do the proper planning around it. You've got to do the numbers around it. I appreciate that, but we've been doing that for 50 years. And I think a good example, um, you know, it's it's different set of circumstances, obviously, but a, a couple of years ago when the AFL women's competition was started, the Guild publicly came out and said, that, you know, there are a lot of people who said, now's not the right time for AFLW. You know, we don't have all the numbers there yet. We haven't done all the financials. Uh, like it might be worth waiting until we've got more support and we can build it up slowly. And I'm pretty sure McLaughlin has come out publicly and said, you know what, I said, no, let's do it. The, the time is now. Let's not wait. Let's not wait any longer. It's been it's been asked for for many years. And I think the Tasmanian AFL side, you know, it's a whole lot of different circumstances. But and this might just be re revealing my true colours and my approach to strategy here, but I think just do it. You've got an open door, don't wait. Uh, you've been doing modelling for years. We've had the, the case there for years. Um, I think if you wait, you might risk other sports, like has already started with the Tasmanian basketball team. You'll have other sports that move in and you might miss your opportunity. So why wait any longer? To kind of round out this conversation, I want to uh, flip their perspective here and, and approach from the AFL's point of view, because regardless of the outcome of this of this bid, uh, change management and stakeholder management will need to occur. So if the decision is yes, then obviously there's conversations that be held with the other 18 clubs, how it affects them, how it affects the, the executive of the AFL, how they go about integrating this new team and how it affects their products, their TV ratings, their fixtures obviously a lot of change will occur. And if the decision is no and there is no Tasmanian team, then how, how would you approach as the AFL negotiating with the, the state government of Tasmania and the Tasmanian people in general to keep them like integrated and involved in, in the AFL as a sport, as a code and as a league? A really good question and one that I uh, find it difficult to answer because I don't want this to be the case. <laughs> but it, if, you were, if you were McLaughlin or the AFL and you, you decided for whatever reason that you had to say, no, or the decision from the club presidents and the commissioners was, no, we're not ready for it. Then you go through the same process that we just outlined uh, in, if you were building the, the campaign in support. You need to highlight who are the key stakeholders and some of them you've already mentioned there, Gordon, with uh, the Tasmanian state government and Tasmanians more broadly. And then going through what are the pain points for them. I, I think we know right now what the pain point is. They don't have an AFL team. Okay, well, what solution can you provide to that? What counter-narrative can you provide to that? And can you build a, a strategy or a narrative around what else you're going to offer them? What's the long-term future? What's the long-term story that you can provide? And I think that the, the answer to that long-term question is an important one, both uh, if there was the decision was not to have an AFL team, but also in thinking about the campaign for an AFL team, so many people and the decision makers that we're talking about are fo will be focused on the immediate. Like, what's the immediate spend? What's the imme immediate financial impact? Because uh, a lot of them, you know, particularly for McLaughlin and, and other members of the AFL Commission, you know, their their KPIs, their key performance indicators will be based on the financials, the amount of uh, people watching TV screens and then add dollars they get from that. Um or sorry, the commercial networks will get the ad dollars and then the commercial networks pay for the TV rights that go, 
goes to the AFL, how many numbers are you getting through the turnstiles into the games, how many people are buying memberships. So it all goes back down to the financials. So I think you need to, if you're building a narrative for or against, you need to think through how do we get through the initial financial impact because starting an AFL team would have a massive uh, financial impact as we've seen with when they started the Greater Western Sydney Giants uh, in New South Wales and with the Gold Coast uh, up in Queensland. You know, there is a massive, um, massive cash um, expenditure at the start. So what's the long-term picture that you can you can paint? You know, over time, are, are you going to see the financial return because you're building a whole coalition of support and a whole new army of AFL supporters over generations? You know, families of Tasmanians that pass on their support of the Tasmanian Football Club uh, through generations. Are you, are you focusing on that long-term picture as, a, as opposed to the short-term expenditure? And I, I think a lot of problems that decision-makers run into is that their KPIs are based on what, what turnover, what revenue are you going to bring in in the next 12 months as opposed to what are you going to bring in 20 years down the track? Because ultimately, you're not going to be the AFL commissioner in 20 years' time, are you? So why do you care what happens 20 years down the track? And I think that's a really important piece of this debate that's going to play out whether Tasmania has a team or doesn't, because if they don't have a, have a team, then the AFL is going to have to think about, does that close the door on the future potential of an AFL team and then the, the potential future growth of AFL in Tasmania? And are they suddenly going to miss out on many long-term dollars? Well, that seems like a great place to uh, to round out this conversation. But given the sports nature of the discussion, uh, all sports fans love a tip. So to close, I will ask you for your opinion on uh, which way you reckon that the bid submission will go. Will it be yes for the Tasmanian AFL licence or will it be a, a no and uh, more status quo uh, for the rest of the league? Uh, Sab, you can lead us off. My tip is yes. I think yes. Um They've waited long enough. Look, I think I'd love a fairy tale story um, for Tasmania, um, but also, as I said, I'm a North Melbourne fan, so I'm a bit biased. I want yes as well for a Tasmanian team. Um, but noting that they've, they've waited a long time and there's a lot of homegrown talent there that want to stay in Tasmania and represent their home state. So I think the, the tip for me is going to be yes. I think what we've seen play out recently will give you an indication. So there ha- we have seen elements of a campaign that we've discussed throughout the course of this podcast. You've seen articles throughout newspapers. You've seen different ambassadors of support who are standing up, like your Jack Rewaltz and your Jonathan Browns. Like it's, it's clear that there's been a coordinated approach and that's really ramped up more than it ever has been before. You've got branding You've got a social media team. You've got a media team already for this Tasmanian team. And I think that shows that there has been a really coordinated approach. And I suspect that they have been behind closed doors also campaigning to those decision makers that we've been talking about uh, throughout the course of this podcast. So I think um, the the last hurdle then is arguably one of the most important people in, in this debate, and that's Gil McLaughlin. Yes, he's only one vote on the AFL Commission, but what we've seen in the past um, or throughout his legacy is that he is clearly very influential and he is clearly a very good operator behind the scenes. And I know there's a whole number of other people involved in this who, who no doubt have been uh, just as influential, but what Gil has demonstrated on other issues like AFLW, that 
that we spoke of earlier in this podcast is that he knows how to work the room. He knows how to work the decision makers. And if he wants there to be an AFL, if he wants there to be an AFL team in Tasmania, then there will be an AFL team in Tasmania. And I think he's coming to the end of his ten- tenure, obviously, as um, at the AFL. And I reckon he'll be willing to burn a couple of bridges um, and to make a couple of big, bold decisions. You know, this would be a big financial output, um, as I alluded to earlier. I reckon he's willing to take that on because he's not going to be the head in the future. But what what he will get out of this is a long-term legacy. Like if Gil is the man that brings uh, AFL to Tasmania, then that is something that people will remember in 50 years' time. And we go back, you know, at the start of this podcast, we said, what are the key motivators for people? What are the key drivers for the decision makers involved? Well, I think legacy is always a really important one. Um, you know, it's, it's something that we all think about naturally as, as human beings. We, we want there to be a legacy. Uh, I think Gil's in a position now to build a legacy for 50, 100 years' time in the, into the future. And he's in the position where he can make some bold calls. Uh, and help get this over the line. So my, based on that, I think we're going to see a team, an AFL team in Tasmania very shortly. There we have it. Lots of good news for our Tasmanian listeners and for football fans in general. Thank you very much for joining us today, James and Sabrine, and thank you for your time. And thank you to everyone who has been listening. Um, but I will say, before you start planning your grand final parties, make sure you subscribe to Michael and Alexander Explains on your podcast player of choice or on our YouTube channel. And if you have a theme or a topic you'd like us to roundtable like we have today for future episodes, let us know by leaving a comment or a review. And until next time, enjoy the football.